Welcome to the Eco Business Podcast. I'm Zafira Zain, correspondent at Eco Business, Asia Pacific's leading sustainability publication. On today's show, we're going to talk about an issue that has received relatively little attention in the media spotlight on palm oil, that is, child labor on plantations. In major palm oil exporting countries such as Malaysia and Indonesia, instances of children working on plantations are widespread, although discussions around what constitutes child labor and how to tackle the problem alongside other challenges faced by the industry makes it difficult to find a sustainable solution. In recent years, investigations by NGOs have found that in palm oil plantations, especially smaller ones that supply large companies, children as young as eight are carrying out hazardous and hard physical work, often putting their health in danger and dropping out of school to help their parents meet daily quotas. The pressures of meeting targets and ensuring a steady income for workers means that children's roles in the plantation are perceived as mere help, especially because children are often not directly engaged by palm oil companies themselves. To further understand the challenges of tackling child labor in the palm oil trade and explore how companies can provide sustainable solutions to protect children on plantations, we have Kamini Visvanathan, Human Rights and Social Standards Manager, RSPO, which is the sponsor of this podcast, and Ines Kamfa, Executive Director at the Center for Child Rights and Corporate Social Responsibility. Welcome to the podcast, guys. Hi, everyone. Hello. Okay, so the issue of child labor is um, generally often disputed and quite a sensitive issue um, as it's perceived as sometimes children just helping out uh, their families on those plantations. Um, Is there a common understanding of child labor in the industry? How would you define um, child labor on plantations? Right, um, so the thing about child labor is I think we need to look at it from a, a very broad perspective. So at the RSP, I might not be able to speak about it from the industrial perspective, but insofar as the RSPO's principles and um, criteria are concerned, as well as the smallholder standards um, and independent smallholder standards for the RSPO members, what we look at when we look at what child labour is, is um, children who are under the age of 18 who are involved in the worst forms of child labour. Any child who is under the age of 12 taking, taking part in economic activity and all 12 to 14-year-olds who are engaged in more than light work. So I think in summary, what you need to think about or look at when you're talking about um, you know, children being present in plantations is they're not engaged in any kind of activities which would harm their health, that would be detrimental to their attendance in school or vocational training. So in that sense, I think it's very important to see that the child's well-being is not being impacted negatively by being present on that plantation. Um, I think it's uh, another thing worth noting is that, um, so we have two different standards. One is the principles and criteria where we look at um, plantations on a larger scale, and we have a new independent smallholder standard. Um, The levels of um, implementation is slightly different. When it comes to the principles and criteria, the principles is very strict. It's that children are not employed nor exploited on the plantation. Whereas when it comes to the independent smallholder standards, on the other hand, um, it's very, we have to be a bit more pragmatic when we're looking at things. So um, the independent smallholder standards um, require that children are not employed or exploited or work work by children is acceptable only on family farms under adult supervision and does not interfere with their education programs and are not exposed to hazardous working conditions. Yeah, I think um, 
I mean, the standards that Kamini just cited are really international standards. They're also the standards that are applied by the international labor organization. So it's very universal. And I think we can see that these standards do make sense no matter the industry, whether that's in a factory or that's on a plantation. But also really looking at those standards, not just as rules or, you know, going in. And I mean, light work often is kind of cited that can be maximum two hours a day. But we really need to look at it from the kind of interest and the rights of children. And the right of children is to to grow up in a healthy environment, um, to have access to education, to have time to play, um, and for example, to have enough time to sleep in order to develop in a healthy manner. And so we really should look at those standards from that perspective. And that should be the questions that we ask. Like, is this child working and as a result deprived of sleep? Or is this child working and as a result never able to have free time to play and run around? And then it's not so much about whether that's two hours or three hours, then that's an issue. But if we see children who can go to school, can do homework, can play and can sleep, then maybe we can say, okay, the child is helping the family once in a while. So we can, I think, looking at it from that perspective, be very pragmatic and really should focus on what is the the interest of the child, what is the the right of the child when we look at those questions. And is um, child labor or the prevalence of children working alongside their parents more prevalent in um, family-owned plantations? Um, I think uh, we have to acknowledge the fact that this is something that might be possible, that you have children on plantations, especially family-run plantations. And we're looking at it from a very global scale. So with the RSPO, our our mission is really to elevate poverty as well as respect human rights. And, um, you know, acknowledging the fact that, you know, it's pragmatic to have, I mean, it's possible that you will see children on plantations. But more importantly, like, what Ines was saying earlier, it's what is the level of their involvement there? I think that's mm. really important and that's the thing we should be focusing on. What is the quality of their lives and how is it being affected? Mm-hmm. And what are the types of work that fall on children that um, you know threaten their livelihoods or threaten their health? Um, um, so what from the research that we have, and I think we have to say one thing um, up front is that there is not that much research, like really thorough. There is um, some NGOs, activist groups who have research pieces. Um, there is some information from the ILO, some information from UNICEF, but I think generally, actually, we don't know so much. But from those kind of glimpses we get from those pieces of research, we do see that children are often involved in all levels of the kind of production of um, palm oil, but in particularly um, in picking up loose fruits, for example, which is a, a cumbersome work um, because you you pick basically the fruits one by one. Um, at the same time, it's very profitable because these are the fruits that contain the moist oil. Moist oil. So um, the families are very eager, or the farmers are very eager to bring those um, uh, those fruits to um, to the processing plants. And so that is one of the um, areas of work that often fall to children. But we have seen that children are also involved in, for example, spraying pesticides or fertilizers, fertilizers um, either which is really bad. That for, for them, obviously, we can imagine that it can be very easily hazardous and this is dangerous work. Yeah, I think um, what we've seen, um, not so much in RSPO members' um, plantations, but in general, the complaints that normally come about when it comes to um, children being pl- present on plantations are really, um, you know, those of them who are picking up loose fruit. 
um, why why do why do they do this? It's because it also adds to the weight. Mm. So um, workers get their um, remuneration based on um, targets that they meet, and these loose fruits sort of actually make up the weight mm. in terms of tonnage. So that's why you would see that um, it's a normal. We've heard complaints or or even reports, NGO reports in the past, um, referring to kids being not being school, but you know following their parents to pick up loose fruit and as such. So I think more than more often than not, those are the that's where we see mm. the prevalence of you know yeah. child labor. Mm-hmm. And maybe to add to that, I mean, particularly smaller kids get most most involved in the pickup, but we do see that slightly older kids, who by kind of ILO definition would be young workers or juvenile workers, they get involved in all levels of production. So they're even in the cutting of the trees, etc. Because by 15, 16, they tend to be strong enough um, to actually do that work. And it's in that age where the children are really exposed to a lot of risk of being involved in heavy and hazardous work. Because um, normally they won't ask the eight years old to carry, um, for example, um, the bunch of fruit, but but the, the the older kids do get involved in that work, and they obviously, although they are in um, above legal minimum working age, they are still not allowed, or they should not be engaged in hazardous work, as we know it's really um, damaging for them during that time of development. Mm-hmm. So, would you say there are certain uh, factors or, or conditions, such as the quota system or meeting targets, that fuel um, the presence of child labor in the industry? Um, well, yes, that's one thing. But I think another thing we also have to take note of or take cognizance of is the fact that um, there's a lack of, for instance, childcare. So parents don't know what to do with their children after school. You know, so um, because of that, there's no there's no um, sufficient childcare. You you don't know where to send your kid. You know, you might not have family members who are present in the space that you're you're working in. So more often than not, these kids end up coming to work with their parents. Or if you have you know in situations where the children are very young, you know, you have your four year old, five year olds, which and they need to be close to their moms, their mm-hmm. pa- uh, their mothers. So if there isn't childcare, then what what happens to this kid? So more often than not, the child just ends up being with the parent, and um, for lack of a better thing to uh, a better way to entertain the child, it's like, hey, you go and pick up loose fruits. You know, make it like a game, game or so. But you know, by doing that again, you're you're exposing your child to danger. So I think one good thing is a lot of companies are are realizing that this is a real issue, and you will see that you know they've come up with very good structured childcare. Um, facilities that are available for the parents. Um, you have, you know, you have religious schools. Um, you have um, after-school crashes. You have, um, you know, companies are actually hiring uh, professional um, care caregivers to come in and make sure that the children are also taken care of. So I think there are, there are several things that lead to a child mm. being on the plantation, and we have to look at it from a very systemic point of view. Yeah, I mean, from the research that we have, we know there's there's different kind of children on plantations, right? So there is the the, the situation Kamini just described, where the parent where the kids just go along with their parents. Often they're smaller kids as well. Um, they tag along and they might get involved. Um, then we do see particular, um, I think, amongst um, undocumented migrant workers. Um, um, we do see a more systematic way of children getting involved um, where they're really becoming part of the family income. So whether they do it after school or 
or not going to school. In both cases, um, their kind of contribution is becoming a, a, a kind of essential element to the family's income. And that one obviously is very closely related to the fact that many of those uh, workers cannot make a decent living if they would not include their, their children as well. Um, and so that's definitely one of the systematic issues that contributes to that. Um, we then do see children independently from their parents getting involved, but I think that's a slightly rarer case. But again, we don't have very good um, information on the numbers. That's like older kids who kind of in the lack of other opportunities, um, they finish school or dropped out of school early, um, don't continue to school, and then they find opportunities in kind of informal areas more like smallholder air, um, sector, um, um, where they find opportunities to make some money. Um, so I think these three cases all have kind of different root causes, um, and um, the industry is contributing to it a little bit probably for, for all of them. But in particular, I think the whole piece rate wage issue is definitely one big question, in a big, the big elephant in the room um, that um, does create a lot of... Um, uh, at least incentive to get children involved. Mm -hmm. And as you've mentioned, it is a very systemic issue that's linked to poverty and access to education. Um, are PAMA companies working with government to tackle these issues uh, so that, that it's more holistic um, and will drive you know, sustainable change? I, I mean, um, there are initiatives. I think um, there is a recognition that this is a real issue and that it's not only one player that is involved in this. Um, as RSPO, we, are, we can only facilitate and we, we can facilitate change. We can, we can approach, we can speak to our, our members, we can approach the government. But, you know, the, everyone needs to come together in order to actually drive such a, such a big change here. I mean, we're talking about cross-country governmental issues. We're talking about, um, you know, um, production rates that a company has to maintain and at the same time, you know, look at how um, they're involving the local communities around them in the best way possible. So whilst there are um, small changes and we're seeing it slowly happening, um, we are definitely there in the forefront trying to move this along. Yeah, I think for, for us it's important that companies really see the two two things. One is bigger socioeconomic issues. So, for example, the whole issue around migrants, undocumented migrants, very much related also to the law in Malaysia. Um, not that easy for companies to solve um, because it's a lot of context. They can maybe lobby with the government, talk to the government. But then there is the the kind of root causes that are directly related to their behavior. And that's, for example, um, price setting, peace rates, um, how they work with smallholders, et cetera. And so their companies do have a direct um, potential impact. And so obviously in, in our discussion, we really try to encourage companies to see that one first um, and, and to see what they can do from their perspective to offer, for example, fair wages. I know that's easier said than done, um, but I think it needs to be addressed. And then we can work on these other initiatives where we, for example, see how can we get access to education that obviously should be government-driven um, into plantations and their companies and governments can work together by making it more accessible. Or we know companies offering school buses so their children can actually, from the plantations, go to the um, next closest available public schools, etc. So there is efforts there. Um, I think sometimes when it, um, particularly by NGOs and activist groups, is kind of seen as a bit negatively, is if companies start with that before they actually address the issue of the fact that these families don't make a decent living, which obviously we just cannot 
discuss away. Yeah, so I think that um, rightfully so, I, the companies are making some amount of effort and we've seen some of our members set up schools where um, they bring in um, schools in Sabah, for uh, Sabah being you know, the space where this is really an issue. And um, they've set up schools where they bring in teachers from Indonesia to teach the Indonesian syllabus to children of um, you know, foreign workers who aren't able to access the public education system. But uh, I think more than that, um, from a systems point of view or for a standards point of view, um, we've also you know, increased um, the level of standards or requirement in the standards when it comes to um, livelihoods. So you'll see right now we require our members to pay a decent living wage. Um, not just the minimum wage as was mm -hmm. the case before this. Um, we've started doing the work where we are requiring our members to start looking at what is the total remuneration package that they give to their workers. And you will see that a lot of our members actually provide a lot of benefits for the children of workers. Many of them provide school buses, many of them provide... Um, School fees, for instance, um, there's actually a health and nutrition program that many of our our member companies do and um, associate themselves with. So it's it's a very big picture. I mean, we, we keep saying that it's a very big picture. You know, you're looking at um, gender rights. You're looking at how mothers are being included into the workforce. Um, we're tackling the issue of casual workers mm -hmm. versus permanent workers. Um, all this goes towards, you know, the protection of the right, I mean, the interest of the children more so than the rights of a child. And um, I think only through that, we would slowly be able to see that, you know, it's not just a one solution fits all sort of situation. And um, we're not, we shouldn't only be focusing, I think we need to move away from the focus of child labour alone and look at it very holistically mm -hmm. as to what is the interest of the child itself. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that is slowly, I think our people are starting to see that and move away from that. You know, oh, we don't want children on the plantation, full stop. We don't want child labor. Mm -hmm. And what has the response been from the community, the workers and the parents themselves when it comes to this issue, based on your research or fieldwork? So recently, we, um, um, in 2016 and 2017, RSPO, together with UNICEF, we um, conducted a pilot in um, Indonesia looking into the key impact areas on children by the palm oil industry. And um, I think there was a very good response. What we did was we went in, um, we actually had workshops with um, the management with the uh, worker representatives. We had workshops with the parents as well. And I think that through these workshops in, in quite a few companies of ours, our member companies who were, who were actually willing to volunteer to be part of this um, pilot project, we saw that there is a keen interest by all, by everybody, the key stakeholders in those, those particular companies to recognize that you know, there is a need for them to move towards um, protecting children. So um, what we did was, I think we've managed to um, compile the report of that pilot project and it's available on our website. You can have a look at it. Um, we were able to identify what were the uh, benefits that are already being provided to the children. Um, what are the key impact areas of the plantations of the palm oil industry? As well as what are the, um, what are the gaps that are, um, that are present right now um, that we can helped close. So this was something that was beyond the standards because if you look at our standards, it only requires that there are no child labour on plantations. Mm. But this went one step further and from that we've realised that, hey, 
it's not just a, a, a child labor situation that we're looking at. If we don't want kids working on plantations, we got to do this, 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 this. So I think I think we've moved one step further from that, and um, we're also looking into developing guidances now for the entire supply chain. I think I have maybe two points to this one. I, I think that the first point really is that whenever we talk to parents, and um, what really strikes me is is no matter how poor and no matter whether the parents are educated or not educated, most parents have a very clear understanding about how they would want to protect their children. And a lot of times it's not that they don't know. It's not that they don't know that children shouldn't go for work. Uh, maybe they don't know some of the details, but they, they know, oh, it would be much better if my kid was in school the whole day and would study. Um, but they just don't know how to actually implement that. So, so I think we have generally a very strong kind of eagerness amongst parents. So any support I can get, um, any way when they understand, no, I can actually do, I can actually have a decent way of living, um, make enough money to survive, and my kid can go to school, the majority of parents will really opt for that, for that solution. Um, so it's not so much about them not understanding that child labor is bad or something like that. It's really about the necessity and, um, um, or how they see it necessity and they need to have a way out. I think that's um, really one of the reactions we get. So any, any effort is, is often very, very welcome by the parents. And I think the second point, um, which I think a lot of the survey has shown, is that while companies have been making a lot of progress and often have quite some of the better companies, some of the best practice companies have some really good systems um, for, for the, um, the workers, we see that often certain groups of workers, like casual workers, are excluded from all those benefits. And that's where we have the most vulnerable kids. That's what Kamini has um, kind of indicated before. And I think that's a really important um, element to look at from a company perspective. Because if we only stay with those kind of long-term contract workers, then we can obviously create good conditions for them but often they're not the bulk of doing the bulk of labor there's a lot of casual work going on there's a lot of informal work going on and I think where we now need to move to um, is that we include any kind of workers and, and and as such any kind of kids into those kind of programs whether they're documented or not documented stateless or have passports whether they're long-term or casual labor etc whether they're often we see it's the wives of contracted workers that do casual work and they then in turn are not protected. Um, and so I think these points are really important for companies now as a next step to look at, which I think is what um, RSPO is really working towards too. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, I understand. I think that uh, women make up the bulk of casual or, or informal workers. Um, so how does improving the situation or plight of women workers um, influence the, the field of child rights or, or improve the situation of, of child labor? How, is, how are those two factors linked? Well, it's obviously intrinsically linked, right? Um, because it is, it starts when kids are small. So if, if mothers um, are on the plantations who don't have childcare, don't have any options, they will bring the kids with them. The kids will get involved, even if they're not. It's not a healthy environment for a two-year-old to be out in a palm oil plantation um, or oil palm plantation for uh, for a whole day in, in the sun and in the heat. Um, so so the mother's fate is is 
intrinsically linked to the to the children's fate much more so also because we know that children tend to stay with their mothers mm-hmm. um, sometimes the fathers go away for work but if the mothers go to work the children tend to move with the mothers and, and come along with them um, so if we manage to to improve those conditions for female workers in particular for undocumented um, stateless female workers and casual female workers then that would immediately have a very positive impact on all the children as well. Mm. So, yeah, so following from that, which is something that we've realised as well, um, if you would look at our standards right now with the 2018 PNC, you will see that um, we are, there are certain requirements which um, strengthen the, strengthens the, the gender equality or the gender gap in, in the sector. For instance, I think one good example is that we now require that core work when it comes to core work um, in the plantation. And these are things like housing, spraying, which is usually done by women. Um, you're required to have permanent workers. Mm. So you can't have contracted workers mm. for these sort of situations anymore. Um, thereby, you know, indirectly means that the women workers who were in the past casual workers would now be taken mm. on as permanent workers. And if you are a permanent worker, you will be you will have access to all the benefits like maternity benefits, for instance. You will have um the benefits to um you know being paid a decent living wage, um which might not have been this case when you deal with casual workers mm-hmm. in the past. Um, that's one thing. We've sort of um we've increased um the consultation, um requirement when it comes to um young mothers. Because you know that most women, what happens is once they deliver, they drop off from employment simply because a there's no one to take care of the children or you know they, they aren't able to breastfeed. And because they can't breastfeed, because they need to come to work, they end up buying formula and which is something which is so expensive, which ends up you know making them have less money mm-hmm. at the end of the day. So um, the standards now, we don't want to make it so rigid or we didn't want to make it so prescriptive. Um, what we've done is we've required the unit of certification to consult with young mothers to see what would, what would be the best way for them to meet their needs when it comes to childcare. So it could be in anything. It could be having a space where they could um, store their milk um, while they're out on the field. Or it could be, you know, having them um, work in a, in, a, in a job which is close to home. So that consultation and that um, freedom is given to both the unit of certification as well as the young mothers to sort of determine what works for them, what works best for them. Um, another thing that we've also done is, um, like you rightly mentioned, more often than not, the casual workers are women and wives of undocumented workers or wives of workers, even if they are documented. So um, in that situation, um, it is required now that the payslip, um, you actually have to um, record what is the contribution that's made by other family members mm-hmm. in that family when it comes to the targets. So that sort of gives the woman a sense of achievement as well to show that, hey, I'm also contributing to the income of the family. Mm -hmm. And in that sense, that's also increasing their voice in many ways. So these are are systemic, again. uh, What we're trying to do in the RSPO is we're trying to get our members to develop a system, a systemic approach when it comes to taking care of their workers so that, you know, you're you're able to identify where the gaps are further in your plantation monitor and close the gaps whenever it comes about. And as, as, as we, you know, as we've learned, children are affected by the palm oil trade in, in more ways, in several ways, and are linked to other human rights issues and, and, and women's rights. 
Um, beyond physical manual labor, how are palm oil companies working in the areas of health, education, and well-being, and how are companies responding to this? Yeah, I mean, um, maybe Camini can add a little bit more, but but um, as she just said, the UNICEF study has cl- shown clearly an, a, a different range of impact areas. And so companies can, obviously, by changing the conditions for their um, for their workers and the families can have an impact. Um, and it really starts from maternity leave, um, um, like when they're babies. Um, longer maternity leave will automatically lead to longer breastfeeding time in the average. Um, but also once women come back to work to find ways to allow them to continue breastfeeding. Mm-hmm. And we've seen quite a few um, companies engaging in this area with setting up breastfeeding um, facilities, informing, giving training to, to women, etc., making them understand, for example, the, the danger of um, um, using formula with um, with with, with unclean water, um, um, so it really starts from when children very are very small. Um, the lack of childcare, and that's um, again, there's there's two things there. There there is that the kids go on the plantation with the parents, but there is also the fact that children on plantation often have very little um, stimulation. Um, they see very little. Um, I think I just read the research report where they said most of the kids had never left the plantation. So if if you're a kid who, who doesn't get new impressions, doesn't see new things, your brain cannot develop as well, and you will be disadvantaged later if you go to school with kids who've traveled around, who go to the city, who have uh, do do sports, etc. Um, so we've seen in this area companies also taking steps to improve childcare. Camille has men- mentioned that before, um, or after-school centers, etc. Um, there's a range of companies who've engaged in education, um, who've worked with NGOs together to set up community learning centers, which is kind of unofficial schools, but that can help children to nevertheless get, get access to education. So I think there's been a range um, of those activities, and that's definitely going into the right direction. I think obviously the challenge of all of those are they're often pilots, they're often a little bit small, and we need to find ways to make those more um, scalable mm-hmm. and to make them standard practice and I think that's mm-hmm. what kind of criteria and principles want to do is that we're getting to standard practice and not just like nice little niche projects here and there. Yeah I think yeah making it scalable because we have a range of membership you know you, you have the big members who are able or uh, are able to provide even you know schools both secondary schools um, primary schools um, provide even scholarships for children to continue their studies and many of them have programs where they bring the children back as um, you know employees subsequently once they've gone through the entire you know after they've put them through higher education and such but of course then you have the the middle the medium scaled um, organizations as well so um, you know so again we need to see what would be the best practices for something i wouldn't say a one solution fits all but what would be the best way that we're protecting these children i actually just wanted to add to that um, because it's been on my tongue a couple of times what you just said right of, of children coming back as employees the, the thing with all those measures that we've been talking about what companies can do that's obviously great for kids but it's not only great for kids it's good 
it's good for the companies as well. And I think if you are a palm oil plantation or a buyer with a long kind of term strategy, all those measures we talked about um, will actually help you to be in business longer. Because one of the big challenges the industry is going to face and is already facing in Malaysia is labor shortage. That's why there are undocumented migrants working on palm oil, because there's not enough documented people here who actually want to do that work. And so we need to create an environment where doing this kind of agriculture work, and that's not just for palm oil, it's for all agriculture. It's actually a big challenge in the future. Who is going to do work? Because if the if people have different opportunities, and if conditions are as tough and rough and little and with small pay, etc., as they are right now, people will move away from agriculture. Parent, if we talk to parents, a lot of them, their goal for their children is that their children are not working on a plantation, but working somewhere else. So if we want to keep this trade going, we need to have conditions that are attractive enough for people to stay and to want to be there and to be skilled and, for example, to be to understand um, palm trees and, and to be the expert and, and to kind of uh, develop this as their trade and as their career. But what we see and what I'm already really, really happy with and what I think um, RSBO and the palm oil industry are on the verge of doing is looking at child labor, which is definitely something that every company is concerned with, right? Um, because it's still this really stigmatizing issue, right? So the so news and reports about children producing palm oil is just really bad for the industry, and it's for any industry or for if it's connected to a particular company or brand, etc. It's just very um, still has a very heavy weight. And what we see now that more and more companies start to look at the issue with not just a kind of risk management perspective, which would be like, let's at least look like we don't have any child labor anywhere. That's kind of the risk management. Um, to a more child rights approach. And so we know that these things are happening because we are sourcing from areas where there is issues around poverty, etc. So we need to tackle those issues thoroughly and in the interest of children. And if we do that, I think there's already, I'm already happy. So even if the company doesn't start out with 10 different child rights agenda points, but just look at child labor with the rights of the children in mind and not just with your own kind of risk management strategy, because the issue with that one is it doesn't solve the problem really. It just makes it look okay. It's if I go out and make a policy and say no one under 18 is ever working in my um, in my productions, uh, in my supply chain. And obviously I can't guarantee that. And then I just don't talk about it anymore because I pretend that this is the case. So I think that's very damaging. So we need to accept that child labor is out there. Yeah, I think that's a good place to leave it. Thank you both for joining us on the Eco Business Podcast. Thank you. This podcast was hosted by Eco Business at the SDG Co, a co-working space for sustainable development organizations in Asia. Eco Business is Asia's leading media company serving the region's sustainability community. This podcast is part of the series Palm Oil Conversations, sponsored by the Roundtable on Sustainable Palm Oil. Join the conversation by visiting eco-business.com, follow us on social media or subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening!